and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have somebody who's brilliant. His voice is amazing. He not only has a voice uh, that is amazing, he does not have a face for radio is what I'm trying to tell you. He's a handsome oh man goodness. as well. There you go. None other than <laughs> Sam Sanders. How are you feeling today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Um, excuse any bits of yogurt and granola in my teeth, but um, it's good to be here. <laughs> I just finished breakfast. <laughs> Uh, for West Coast, West Coast. I'm actually mm-hmm. in Hilton Head, South Carolina today for a oh, trial nice. lawyers convention. So look at that. And, and the sun is not out, but hopefully we'll Are get trial there. lawyers conventions super boring or like a total turn up? Because I could see both. Oh, it's it's remarkably a turn up. In fact, wow. my wife gives me hell about it all the time, which I bring her to them. But she's like, all y'all do is party and drink all night long. And that is true because during the morning we actually go to class but about 12 yeah. o'clock it's it's a turn up so listen you know. two industries that always will party journalists and lawyers always i'm surprised you're not i'm surprised you're not in birmingham you know i so my mother is actually from birmingham and i'm actually going back to alabama next week because my aunt my aunt betty my mother's sister she just retired after living for years in Delaware, and she moved back home to Alabama. So I'm actually going to Alabama next week to help her like unpack all of her boxes. I like oh, getting back you over know, there. There are two, there two points about this story. The first is that every black person I know has an Aunt Betty. Yeah. Either she's your, <laughs> either she's your real aunt, or you just have somebody in the community named Aunt Betty. That's one. And two, no matter where your black ass is in this country, your family is either from South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, or South Carolina. Everybody's from those places. Doesn't matter where you are. For obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Historical obvious reasons. (laughs) So look, my first question uh, is usually the same to every guest. It makes our show decently unique. But we like you to walk us through the arc of your career. Talk about your career arc since finishing the Kennedy School. Shout out to the Kennedy School. You were a legacy admission, right? I'm assuming. A girl. <laughs> uh, the, Maybe they the would have given me more money if, the, if if that was the case. <laughs> so what you're doing now? Talk to me about the arc of your career. Yeah, I was in general all over the map. Um, I thought for a long time growing up that I was going to be a musician. I started playing the saxophone at church when I was like in seventh or eighth grade. And this one of those black churches where we had like a full band. Like I was in the horn section we had you know a drummer (laughs) and a percussionist a keyboardist and an organist lead guitar bass guitar like a full band we called ourselves the posse and i was i played with them all my childhood i studied i studied music composition in college along with a double science a, a double major in political science and i finished undergrad and i was like what do i want to do i could have gone the route of musician but that felt particularly unstable Um, The entry-level jobs you get with a bachelor's degree in political science in South Texas, also not too exciting. So going to the Kennedy School, like, bought me an extra two years to think, you know? Mm. So I went there just being like, well, let's see what happens. Let's see what, like, comes out in the wash. And the classes I was most drawn to were the ones on media and politics. And then I happened to just get an intern at the public radio station in Boston, WBUR, and I kind of just stuck with it. But I never imagined as a kid that I would like make a career talking. I always liked the radio, but I grew up with a horrible, deep, intense stutter. Like I really couldn't talk for years. And so 
part of getting over that was just putting myself in situations where I would be forced to talk. So I made myself do student government. I made myself do these things where like I had to just talk and I got better at it. And by the time I was at the Kennedy School and really realizing that I loved the radio, loved audio, loved talking about shit and had gotten better at it, I was like, well, let's try this. And so after my internship during my last semester of grad school up in Boston, I began a fellowship at NPR in DC after that, and I've been working in audio pretty much ever since. I was at NPR. But but, but, but let's let's stop for okay. a second. I mean, because this is an amazing story of like overcoming and perseverance, and one I didn't necessarily we were gonna know we were gonna get. Yeah. But to yeah. talk to, I mean, talk to the people who, um, out there who, t- what were some of the tools and some of the things you did from stuttering and not being able to talk well? Um, to being on NPR. I mean, that's, you know, those two things don't always go together. Yeah. I mean, I probably took the longest, most arduous path to get over it. Both of my parents were educators Mm -hmm. and they were very concerned with like getting my brother and my educations right, you know? So they would have not even batted an eye if, I was like, can I go see a speech therapist to get some help with this? I was too proud to do that, and they wouldn't force me, which is funny because my brother went to speech therapy as a kid for some other language issues. Um, So I I, I never wanted to talk about it because it was very embarrassing. There were some people in the family who were just like, well, why can't you get over it? My parents never made a big deal of it, but I always was also like a really outgoing kid. Like I made a lot of friends. I was fun to be around. I was sociable. And I was charming, but I had this horrible stutter on top of all of it. And what I ended up doing, probably like in high school, I just made myself do things that would require me to talk. I was band president. I was in student government. And I was a drum major in band, so I was a guy calling out the commands. So you were still confident. You were confident even though you you, you just couldn't. Yeah, that's pretty Yeah, confident in spite of my whatever. And I think it was the worst, you know, like, I don't know if they still do it this way in school, but back in the day in school, you're reading a book in English class, everyone has to read the paragraph. The least favorite part of my adolescence as a really bad stutterer was having to go around the English class and read a paragraph from the book. And it was wild because I was always the best English student. I was always the best. I was a good writer. I won awards in high school for like best English student. And I couldn't read the damn book out loud. And something about that, frustrated me so much to where I kind of was just like, I'm getting over this because this is, this is, I don't like this. So I just kind of forced myself to be out there in situations where I was forced to talk. And eventually I just got a lot better at talking. And, you know, I, that, you know, it's such a unique tool because I was probably a terrible human because when we used to make people raise their hand and read out loud, we would be the people who would pick on those individuals who couldn't quite put it together so shout out to jared yeah. Loho also who's my ep who who did that as well but you your story of overcoming is like you you hear joe biden talk about it all the time and being president mm-hmm. of the united states yeah. but i i don't think i've ever heard it from somebody who i've sat across from like yourself so i i hope that you recognize that and applaud your perseverance and your parents uh stick to itiveness mm. i appreciate that well and i think this is the thing it's like you know it's like an alcoholic's always an alcoholic, even if they're a recovered alcoholic. A stutterer yeah. is always a stutterer, even if they're a recovered stutterer. Like, I've gotten really good at like knowing what situations and scenarios will like 
trigger it for me. So in all of my audio work, um, I write all my own copy and I get last pass on my copy because I know how to write words for myself in a way that will be easy to read out loud, right? Makes sense. Um, yeah. You'll rarely see me do live video where I have to read a script that somebody else wrote because that's just like my worst nightmare because if I get stuck, it's like, whoa. Um, when I do pre-recorded stuff, I always have a chance to go back and say it over. Should I not get it right? And I think it's funny, like, even though people are like, oh, you went from stuttering to like talking for a living. But in the realm of like jobs where you have to talk for a living, podcasting is the least <laughs> intense. I can always yeah. redo it. And usually no one's looking at me, right? So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Before we get the podcast, because we're going to talk into it and some yeah. of the issues you've been covering lately, let's talk about your time at NPR and public radio as you were yeah. a prominent black voice on NPR, prominent voice. Let me just say that. I, but you also were a black man with that voice. And I feel like a lot of voices like you and Audie Cornish and others aren't at NPR anymore. And you talked about diversity or lack thereof when you were there. Has NPR done better in this regard? They'd probably have to tell you that, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, I've spoken at length about issues of diversity and equity and inclusion within the public radio system and my relationship with that place and those issues at that place is complex, right? So it's safe to say that I was a success story from NPR, right? I came to NPR not knowing how to be a journalist, just knowing that I wanted to do it. They taught me how to do it. They let me figure it out. And they gave me two shows through which I could find my voice. You know, before I hosted It's Been a Minute for about five years, I was one of the first hosts of the NPR Politics podcast. And I had never hosted a podcast before at that point. And they let me do that, right? And at every step in my career, I felt like there was possibility to push the boundary of what a public radio journalist could do, could talk about, and how they could sound. So I want to acknowledge that and say that NPR was a great place to learn, and it was a place where I really came into my own voice. At the same time, NPR leadership will tell you there are some diversity issues there, sometimes major, and they're present not just within the ranks of that company, but in the audience of public radio. And there's still work to be done on that front. But I also think the challenges that NPR faces are the challenges that all legacy institutions face at this moment in journalism. The New York Times has the same problem. The Washington Post has the same problem. CNN has the same problem. Like all of these places have the same problem, which is that in this century, we're trying to figure out how to make journalism work for a diverse American population when we know that journalism in the American sense was only created for white people, for white men of a certain means, right? So all of the rules and norms and practices of capital J journalism, they're based on a system and a structure that was inherently segregated where the first things that we ever called journalism in this country were only meant for white people. We're only meant for rich people. We're only meant for straight people. This is why throughout American history, you had alternative news outlets that would cater to queer people or cater to women or cater to black folks because big journalism wasn't doing that for us. And so part of what I see is institutions like NPR and other ones 
having to figure that out and undo that. And so when I look at it that way, I can't just like be mad at NPR. I can say this is part of a larger system and structure and history. And if you're trying, I'll give you a hats off for trying. I think I had hit a point in my career and my time at NPR where a few things were happening. I had had some personal equity experiences there that made me feel like I needed to be somewhere else. And that's what I'm going to say about that. And I had gotten to a point where some of the things I wanted to say, I wasn't going to be able to, to say on public radio airwaves. You know, like the more that I was hosting, the more the topics I covered broadened. And some of this stuff was just like not safe for kids, <laughs> you know, not safe for the faint of heart. But I wanted to have the space and freedom to do that. And so now the two shows that I make are podcast only. They aren't on the radio. There's self-selecting audiences. And we get to go there, you know. But long story short, of course there are issues with NPR. But there are issues with every newsroom in the country about diversity and equity and inclusion. And I can say that there are issues and still say I got to do a lot of cool stuff there. And being there set me up to have the rest of my career, which is just opening it up, I think. Sorry, yeah. I rambled a bit with that That's one. a great, no, 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 great analysis. You landed in a good place. Let's talk about your podcast, Intuit. How is Intuit different from the other trademark work you've done, like It's Been a Minute? Yeah, I think like each of the shows that I've worked on, we can talk about Intuit and then my other podcast, Vibe Check, that I host with just two friends of mine. I love them, Zach and Saeed. But each of the shows, when I look at them holistically, They've like served a function for me and also for our audience. So when we launched the NPR Politics podcast, we just already knew that the 2016 election was going to be the craziest and weirdest of all time. And like, how do we make sense of it? So we made that podcast to help political junkies make sense of what became the strangest and craziest election ever. But that wasn't just for the audience. That was for me, too. I didn't know what the hell was going on on either. Like I was on the trail. I was following Bernie, following Hillary, following Donald, reporting, but also being like, none of this makes sense. And we would talk it out on the NPR Politics podcast in conversations that would like enlighten our listeners, but also enlighten me. Like I was learning from my other NPR Politics colleagues in real time on that podcast, right? And then I think with It's Been a Minute, the goal was to take what I had, figured out covering politics and like tie it to the rest of the world. My official beat when I covered politics was the intersection of pop culture and politics. And once I finished doing that beat for like a year, year and a half, I was like, oh, everything is this beat. All news stories are actually intersectional. And so it's been a minute. It started out as a show that wanted to look at news in an intersectional way and look at it through the lens of identity and who we are, right? Um, so we started doing that. And then over the course of the pandemic, it's been a minute, it just became a pandemic show. It became a, how do we get through pandemic show? Right. Which was good for our listeners yeah, and also good for me. True. Right. Yeah. And then now making into it, I knew that I wanted to really focus on pop culture and entertainment for a while. And I wanted to do it now. And in this way, because I think one of the defining cultural truths of our current moment is that like, there's no more monoculture. It's gone. I'm not the first person to say this, but think about when you were a kid. Everybody would watch Fresh Prince like Thursday night and they'd come to school on Friday and talk about it. 
Right. Everybody watched the same thing. Everyone would have the same song of the summer. Everyone listened to the same album. Friday albums. night. Friday night. Everybody watched the same thing on Friday night. Thank, thank God. TGIF. I mean, the best Literally. shows came on, on Friday night. Literally. Yeah. And there was like a national water cooler that just existed. And in this era of streaming and fragmentation, it's just so much harder to have these monoculture moments. Like Barbie and Oppenheimer was one of those moments, but they now come by every few years. Think of the way you watch TV. You don't watch it in sequence and in order with your friends. You know, some of my friends watch White Lotus a month after I did, right? And so we exist in this world where there's a lot of pop culture, but no more monoculture. How do we make sense of popular culture in that kind of moment? That's what Intuit is all about, making sense of pop culture in the absence of monoculture. And I'm really interested because like all of these things, entertainment, TV, movies, music, books, video games, what they are really doing for us is offering us a template of a script for how to live our lives. The way we see people behave on screen informs the way we inhabit our own lives and how we present ourselves. Growing up gay and closeted, I kind of learned how to be gay literally late at night after my parents went to sleep watching Rocky Horror Picture Show or Fame on VH1, right? Like popular culture and entertainment offers a script for our lives. And so how do we make sense of those scripts when any semblance of unity or monoculture around them is being lost? This is like the central question of Intuit. Also, we just get to have fun talking about pop culture and shit. <laughs> two, two big, two questions, they're bigger questions that I have yeah. to ask you. Yeah. Um, one is about a specific episode, but one is just a, a broader theme that I think you would be an expert or, or just have a great deal of insight into. So it's decently ironic that I'm asking you this, but I, I want to hear your answer. Do we have too many podcasts? And what did the podcast boom tell us about ourselves, how we like to be informed and the fight for people's attention? Because do we have too many podcasts? Almost sounds almost too simplistic of a question, but I do think we have too many misogynistic bro podcasts. Like yeah. every, nigga don't, yeah. every nigga don't need a mic is my point. There you go. Yeah. And listen, put that on a T-shirt. Every nigga don't need a mic. I would wear it. I'd pay top dollar for it. But no, I, whenever people ask me, like, are there too many podcasts? My response is, are there too many books? Are there too many books? Tell me. For real. Are there? Yeah. Good question. There are answers no, but I, I yeah, guess. The answer's yeah, the answer is no. But, but like, there are good books. There are bad books. There are okay books. There are weird books. But you know, as a reader, you never have to read all the books. And you never will. You find the books you like. And the existence of an abundance of books actually does nothing to hurt your experience of a book that you like. Where it does hinder enjoyment of things like books or things like podcasts is when there's too many for you to like find the ones you like in. And so for me, it's not, are there too many podcasts? It's the discovery model is fucked. We don't know how to find the good ones anymore, right? It felt like there was a moment, how many years ago was it when like Serial was like the podcast? Oh, yeah, it was. It was two years. I mean, it was like, I mean, in, in, during COVID, you had like. Yeah. And a, there was a, a moment. A non I believe name. Yeah. And like there were these moments where everyone knew like, this is the podcast we're listening to this week. We're doing this one. 
and it felt like discovery was easier. So my only there are too many podcast critiques comes in me being a little upset that our industry hasn't found a good way to showcase the best of what we're doing in an organized fashion for listeners. If you don't regularly go to the front page of the podcast section of Apple Podcasts on a regular basis, how else do you know what's out there and what you should listen to? There's just so much. You know, you hear advertisements for podcasts on other podcasts. Do they resonate with you? Do they make you go listen to the other podcast? Maybe. And so it's not an abundance question. It's a packaging and presentation question. And this is hard to solve because, like, there's no incentive for all the big players in podcasting to work together on this. <laughs> there's no incentive. Why would they all get together and be like, let's make a podcasting how-to, a podcasting guide, a here's your podcast, whatever. Why would these companies who are competing for years do that together? But I would love if they did. Never going to happen. But no, all this to say... There aren't too many podcasts. It's just hard to find the ones that will speak to you. Like we need, if to take it back to the books analogy, you can't find the right book. You go to Barnes and Nobles, someone is there to like tell you how to find it. You go to the library, there's a librarian who has a master's degree in just helping you find the right book. How do we get podcast librarians? Seriously, how do we get podcast librarians who are like, oh, you like this? Go to this show. That's what I want. And so for me, that's a problem that can be fixed. They're called algorithms. Duh. No! No! <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's what I think I want. When I hear the are there too many podcasts argument question, it's not that there are too many podcasts. It's just that the curation is kind of off right now. So this, I, before I let you go, yeah, got to ask you a very important question. Um, yeah. Because I loved your episode with country music's race problem. Oh, okay. with Tressie, who is a so light of our time. Me, She's the best. Let me just, it, it's, a, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant, well-contoured episode. Thank you. Well, let me tell um, listeners, it is in the feed for my Vulture podcast, Into It. It's called Country Music's Race Problem. We talked with the public intellectual and MacArthur genius, Tressie McMillan Cottom, and it was phenomenal. And two black folks talking about country and race with a lot of music in it. It was quite fun. But yeah, go ahead. So I am a I am a country music fan. Okay. A lot of people don't know that. A lot okay. of people don't know that. This is the thing. Southern uh, black folks love country. Southern black folks do, actually we love do. country. I mean, listen, we grew I, up I, with you it. Know, I think, you know, I, I love, and this is going to sound weird, but I love the way Taylor Swift writes her music. I think her lyrics are very poignant and tell yeah. a story. I mean, I, they're not, it's not my story, but she's able yeah. to put together her sentence structure and lyrics to mm -hmm. tell a story. But I, I'm, you know, and this goes to the heart of it. I think the best album of this year so far has mm -hmm. been Morgan Whalen. Um, yes, I know. It's insane. I know. Did you see his album? Ah! His album is dope. His album is amazing. It's no I think you're the album. first black person to ever say that Morgan Whalen album is dope. <laughs> and <laughs> you know Morgan what? I'm going to allow it. We like what we like. We like what we like. Yeah, Morgan, but Morgan Whalen has a little racism, right? It's just like well, the whole a little industry. dab, the little dab of racism. But you covered mm -hmm. this, so get get people. You gave us the the top lines, but give people who may not know uh, the Cliff Notes version of that episode. And black folks like myself, we like country music, but country music, like everything else, has been dominated by white folks. 
and has always been a little bit racist. And some of the imagery has gotten kind of super racist as it's been the the anti-woke catalyst of where we are today. Yeah. So talk about that a bit. Yeah. So we wanted to do the episode because three different country songs were rising up the charts with very interesting stories. The Morgan Whalen song last night uh, was number one, the number one song in the country for 14 weeks. I think it still uh, might be, actually. Still might be number one, yeah. In spite of Morgan ostensibly being canceled two years ago after video surfaced of him saying the N-word quite casually, and you'll for, you'll probably it wasn't forget. the first time Morgan Whalen had said Nick. Yes, <laughs> literally, literally. Well, and this also came around during deep pandemic when he lost a spot on SNL because he just like wasn't masking, and they found out about that. So Morgan's supposed to be canceled, but then he comes back not even two years later with the biggest song in the country and probably the biggest album of the year. Second, Jason Aldean, veteran country singer, released a song called Try That in a Small Town, which seemed to be a song calling for the good old boys to organize a militia. And the video was shot in front of the site of a historic lynching and a race riot. And it included protest footage from Black Lives Matter protest, I guess meant to demonize black people. This was by the way, he 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 punked out quick like and he took that image. He pulled that out. Yeah, he pulled that out. Yeah. But basically, this dog whistle of a song uh, also went to the top of the charts after CMT pulls the video because people said this is this is all that woke propaganda trying to hurt our our guy. And it pushed the song to the top of the charts. Third song, Luke Combs cover of the Tracy Chapman classic Fast Car is now near the top of the charts and has peaked higher than Tracy Chapman. It doesn't belong in the Chapman's. same category with those other two, though. But go no, ahead, but go I'm going to tell ahead. you why. I'm going to tell you why. That song has gone to higher heights on the charts than Tracy Chapman's original, which led Tracy and I to have the conversation. It's like, what vessel for the music does country respect most? A white man over a black woman is what we're seeing in this instance. But with all of this, the conversation is such that like country music is more successful than it's ever been. It's bigger than it's ever been. And yet every hit, every big thing has a tinge of racism or a race problem around it. And when you look at the numbers by radio play, more than 99% of the people heard on country music radio are white still in 2023. So the central question of this episode was, how did country music get so white and stay so white when every other genre has basically DEI'd itself? Hip hop welcomes everybody. Jack Harlow gets to be in hip hop. Kesha gets to be in hip hop, right? Something about country, it didn't do it. Kesha's white? <laughs> she wouldn't want to be Wait, seriously? Oh yeah, Kesha's white. <laughs> I've never seen That's her before. I don't know. Wild. <laughs> I don't know what I'm she looks cracking like. Cracking up. You have to Google her right now and I want to hear your reaction to seeing what Kesha looks okay. like. <laughs> yeah, I've never it, it's like K E dollar sign, right? Yes. K E dollar sign. How have you never a. seen Kesha? Oh, she's white white. <laughs> she is. Does she she have is? a tattoo on her palm? Probably. I've never, I would have never, I would have never in a thousand years. No, I've never seen the woman before. I do know she. (laughs) Pull this video clip. This is a social clip. Bakari discovering that Kesha is white. 
That is a social clip. Oh my god. I love it. I'm gonna but, send no, you a playlist of my favorite catch songs. Real quick, but back I, up. My, before yes. I let you before I let you go, I got yes. it because the the thing that I want to say about because I, I think that um Tracy Chapman is a unique story for a couple of reasons. One, she is so much more talented than Luke Combs. Luke Combs And he'll say that. He's write. a nice guy. He'll admit it. Yeah. You know, he's a very nice guy. He has a beautiful voice, but he doesn't write shit. He everybody knows that, right? That's not a secret. Yeah. But yeah. What he's displaying is, and I don't think you can just say black female. I think you have to say black female and queer when it comes to uh, Tracy Chapman, because what she went through during that time period, I mean, she was has to be one of the strongest people that we've ever, ever seen emerge mm-hmm. from uh, uh, just the doldrums of what country music has been. And people like my friend Darius Rucker, who I think is one of the greatest artists of our generation, doesn't get the respect mm-hmm. he deserves. Uh, yeah. They stand on the shoulders of people like Tracy Chapman. Yes. Yeah. Well, and like, this is what really was the heart of the episode. So whatever we think about Jason Aldean, Luke Combs, Morgan Whalen, what is real and true is that country music didn't start out white, but it got very white. And the history of it, we unpack. So the fundamental building block of country music is the banjo. Where'd the banjo come from? Africa. Literally from Africa, right? Um, Before it was called country music, it was hillbilly music. And hillbilly music was an art form perfected by black and white people in the South. And a lot of it was based on the sound you would hear in blackface shows and minstrel shows. Mm -hmm. And when record labels became a thing, trying to sell and mass market music to Americans, they purposefully split hillbilly music in two. And so the first Billboard charts looking at quote-unquote country music had a chart for hillbilly music, which was the white folks, and then a chart for race music, which was for the black folks. And so as soon as we began documenting the success of all musical forms, it became racialized. And I wanted to talk about that history in the context of country as we know it today. It's not just that country is kind of white. It's not just that white people gear themselves and trend towards country it's that country as we know it was built to be white so let's talk about that that's the episode really mm. man sam you, you delve into some amazing things tell people where they can follow you how they can find all the great things that you're doing yeah i am at sam sanders everywhere at S-A-M-S-A-N-D-E-R-S. Uh, my pop culture show for vulture in new york magazine is called into it we publish new episodes every tuesday and friday And I have a fun little talk show uh, with two dear friends of mine, poet and author Saeed Jones and Tony award-winning producer Zach Stafford. That show is called Vibe Check and our little weekly kiki drops every Wednesday. Well, I love you, my brother. Shout out to your parents going back and coming full circle for believing in you, giving you all the resource and tools to be what you are today. Shout out to Birmingham, Alabama, all my good friends at NABJ and yeah. Mayor Randall Wolfen down there. Y'all be blessed. Thank you for tuning into Bakari Sellers podcast. Yeah. Bakari, thank you. Thank you for this. I've been watching you for years and I'm a big fan. This was really fun. I appreciate you. No, I am. I, I've, I've known your voice for so long, so it's amazing to put a face with it. So I appreciate you. Yeah, man. Happy to do it. It's going to be 